Hello everyone. Welcome to episode number 16 of the Bible Prophecy Masterclass, in which we will pause to ponder the TBN movie, One Night with the King, a show that was much lauded when it first aired, having got a fair amount of hype before, during and after its debut some years ago. As a Pentecostal creation, however, conceived by a Mr. Tommy Tenney, was it justified? How accurate was Mr. Tenney's handling and his portrayal of the story of Queen Esther and her uncle Mordecai? In the grand scheme of things, is this just more hogwash theology? Or, does it actually bring substantive thinking to the theological bargaining table? In an arena where, critical thinking, is a must. Continuing in and rounding out our discussion of Pentecostalist teachings, Let's talk about it in today's episode number 16 in our multi-part series involving a thorough consideration of the 18th chapter of the Book of the Revelation. Again, these readings come from the book, Judgment Day, Volume 1, Prelude to Armageddon, Part 1, The United States in Bible Prophecy, written by Mr. Alvin Mitchell. I, Carol, will be your host. One Night with the King. The Grand Illusion, of Tommy Tenney, Matt Crouch. Let the Pentecostals tell it, and this, at the time of this writing, new, soon-to-be-released movie, based upon the book by a pastor named Tommy Tenney, produced by Matt Crouch, son of Paul and Jan Crouch owners and founders of TBN is the greatest thing ever, for the Christian community, since canned soup, sliced bread or even the birth of the Christ himself. But, is it? They herald it as being true to scripture. Is it being largely fiction, by Mr. Tenney's own admission, with key components of the story, including the overall thrust, being inaccurate, any and every false prophet one can ever hope to encounter will always claim that his point of view is the most scriptural of all. The day after the premiere, the 11th of October 06, Jan Crouch praised and appraised it not as a movie but as a prophecy from God. Really? Esther is lauded in all the promotional hype and media bling as a young woman, chosen of God for her extraordinary role because of her faith. Hoon? If there was any faith to speak of, how did the God of all the universe miss it, when evidently, he saw the whole thing? Perhaps we should give Mr. Tenney credit for having the guts to admit publicly that his work, the book, is fictitious. Might that also be an admission that the book is loaded with doctrinal error, as well? After all, the book and movie cannot be both fiction and true to scripture all at the same time. Can it? Without doubt, this marvelous woman, some say girl, in her mid-teens, was a catalyst, a choice pun, a key player in God's plan, albeit, she is praised as one who literally changed the world. And, in some sense, it might be argued, she did, but, is that the picture God wanted mankind to see, when presented with the story of Esther? What is wrong with this picture, as painted by this son of a holiness preacher? What exactly did God intend for us to see here? What is the takeaway, Esther as a godly heroine, or Esther as a witless pun, a pagan Jew in his all-sustaining hand, she did not know him, among a largely faithless people held captive now by choice, the release date of their God-orchestrated foreign incarceration having passed they having refused to leave the faithless centerpiece at the very heart of his plan to preserve a fledgling branch of that faithless people, struggling for survival, being now in the crosshairs of a new threat to that struggle, separated by almost a thousand miles. Granted, Esther's role in the plan of God for the sustenance of the Jew, saved her people, 
who would otherwise have most assuredly been wiped out, kingdom-wide, not just in Persia. The Jew gave us the Christ. And the world has not been the same since no doubt about it. In all of their praise for the movie, praise for Esther, praise for the producer, praise for this and praise for that about the movie, have they, has everyone? Alas, missed the point. Realizing that her name according to the Oxford University Press Scofield KJV Reference Bible means, star, who was the actual, star, of the show in, Esther's, story. If God can do it through Esther, he can do it through anyone, they chanted over and over again, is what they profess to want the viewers, particularly young women, to take away with them from the movie. Certainly, this is a very true statement, and it may be an amiable objective, but is that what God intended to be the focus of our attention? Properly distilled and analyzed, is this a role that any but a fool would wish upon his daughter, or any young woman? The inference in this line of errant, foolish reasoning is that God will act under similar conditions and situations of duress, if we create the right set of circumstances. That's odd, is it not? There have been countless times of stress since those days, when the Jews, having created more and similar trouble for themselves, could have used any sort of a deliverer, and yet for anyone understanding the story there has in no case, ever, been another Esther. Which begs another question. Who then creates the basis upon which Esthers might be born, and or needed? God, or men? Put another way, what but a fool, knowing that the circumstance that led to, such a time as this was the sin of rebellion, and, rejection of God, and, knowing that at the first moment of, such a time as this. The people were still living in sin, denial and rejection, and, realizing that, such a time as this was ultimately not about the Jews or the millions with them living in or around Shushan, the Persian palace at all, as rather the objective was to protect, spare, save and to perpetuate the 50,000, plus, living 1,000 miles away from the epicenter of the source that spun the immediate danger that gave birth to, such a time as this, what sensible person, one wonders, would ever stoop to wishing for or leading his daughter along a route that leads to, such a time as this. Granted, the Magi, who brought rich gifts that made a peasant messiah, still in diapers, one wealthy toddler, came from the loins of the millions of detainees left in exile following Cyrus' decree permitting the rebuilding of the Jewish homeland, but it was the loins of the 50,000 or so returnees who produced that Messiah. Further, the chances that she will not only be lost for all eternity, but rejected and or overlooked to boot, are far greater than that she will ever be selected to the role of an Esther. In addition, therefore, consider it, there was no Esther to deliver them from the slaughter of the Romans under Titus in 70 AD and in 135 AD, under whomever. No such person arose during the ravenous rampage of the bloodthirsty Catholic crusaders, who killed Jews at will, purely for zeal. Nor, was there one to deprive the murderous, monstrous bloodbaths created by the Bolsheviks under Lenin and Trotsky, supposedly 20 million, or the Nazis under Hitler, 6 million, to drink and slurp Jew blood. Clearly, in every such circumstance, what we had here was, such a time as this, the need being for a hero or heroine. The objective, as with Haman, was to kill them all, without cause. As you consider the Crusades, the Inquisition and the Holocaust, and the Esters needed but who did not show, consider also the next Holocaust attempt planned by God per Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, 
as well as the future encounter with the beast per Daniel 7 and Revelation chapter 13. God knows what is coming. He has choreographed the whole thing. Yet, in no case is there a role for an Esther scripted in. So, is, one night with the king, a blessing and source of biblical encouragement for saints of our day, or is it just more grand entertainment, bearing a message having little or no real biblical relevance or spiritual significance, in the end maybe even a curse? It seems that, in typical Pentecostal fashion, the writer of the book and the producer of this film have each, by an exercise of a want or lack of genuine concern for critical thinking and analysis, missed the point of the story of Esther. In so doing, they have in the finale, missed the real message of the book, overemphasizing an individual whose role was at best secondary, and subordinate at every turn, to him who was indeed the leading character. In God's economy and timing, Esther, fine young lady, awesome personality and intellectual beauty, though she may well have been, really was not the young woman these people make her out to be. The tenny, crouch deception is only one more grand illusion designed for the minds of fools in the faith who will otherwise not submit to sound doctrine and teaching. Servants and chosen, but not saints. There is no evidence that Esther or her uncle were ever determined, dedicated servants of God. Intriguingly, whereas they are not condemned as being worst-case, sinful scenarios, one cannot but observe that he is careful to never hold them up, nor does he ever, in any way, allude to them, anywhere in Scripture, as examples, or as models of faith and or piety. Contrast this fact to the Daniels, the Ezras, the Nehemiahs, and certain of the prophets, all like them of Babylonian captivity fame. Then there's Abraham, visited by God in person and Moses, with whom God talked face to face, and of course, the sweet psalmist, man after God's own heart, in the midst of his highlighting of all their warts, shortcomings and failings, lying, murders, adultery, God held them up as pillars of faith. Even the womanizing Samson makes the cut. Demonstrating in the waning moments of his life, a humble and contrite heart not at all to be frowned upon by him who constantly tries our hearts. Hence, moreover, not only is there never any mention of God anywhere in the book, there is equally never any calling out to God on the part of either of these, the tale's principal participants, the undisputed heroine and hero, as with the Israelis at the height of their Egyptian enslavement, their anguished cries going up to God, while not specifically directed to him, so likewise, God observes that Mordecai, having symbolically expressed his grief upon hearing of his impending doom through the cultural custom of donning of sackcloth and ashes, cried aloud bitterly, albeit, no tear was shed with him in mind, not inconspicuously, no prayer of theirs was ever intentionally sent his way. There is not the slightest hint or evidence of faith in God, nor is there any expression of concern, knowledge and or recollection of his past providence on their parts notwithstanding the movie depiction, a lie, of both invoking the name of God, Esther speaking of having read and taught the Torah. The biblical evidence is such that, Mordecai and his family eschewed their Jewish heritage, publicly, so that no one outside the family knew. Esther for her part, was mindful to insist that all the Jews at Shushan the palace be gathered together for a three-day period of fasting, before whom, in terms of deity, is not specified, after which she would present herself with her petition before the king, uninvited, fully expecting that in all likelihood she would be killed, 
Contrast this to her exiled comrades in the book of Daniel, who living in enduring trials and times of testing before her, are always pictured with their eyes and hearts toward heaven. There could never be a shred of doubt as to where they would turn in times of duress. Their lives were so marked, even in the midst of open hostility. So were Ezra and Nehemiah, each always mindful of the reality and presence of God. Neither sought advice or wisdom from the priests or scribes as to how this difficult time should be handled Ezra, having served in the capacity of both, being the best evidence that they were there, and available. There was no offering of prayers or petitions to Yahweh Elohim, or, at least there is no evidence or reason to believe that either Mordecai or Esther led therein. But for the fact that they themselves were careful to remember their roots, behind closed doors, they were fully assimilated into Babylonian culture. As far as anyone could tell, they were Babylonians. While they obviously never forgot nor denied their Jewishness, no one outside the four walls of their home knew that they were in fact Jews. All of this, in addition to being perhaps most telling, is both fitting and understandable, given that their then-current circumstance and predicament was, as a matter of fact, the product of a national life of rejection and repudiation of God and of His demands upon them, in the first place, they wanted to be like all the other nations around them. The Jew presence in Babylon was not a weekend visit, nor was it a spring vacation. Rather, the nature of their seventy-year stay was punitive, a form of incarceration, one might say, with the Babylonians doing honors as their jailers. Specifically, among other things, the Jews, like the ten tribes deported by the Assyrians before them, never to return, were deported, as promised, to Babylon on account of their preference of worship directed to idols and false gods over the true and living God, who had already demonstrated his reality and viability before the eyes of the then-known world by way of a strong deliverance from their Egyptian hell on earth. Despite the accompaniment of a few upright and devout Jews who, throughout the seventy years in captivity, sought to distinguish themselves as servants of the God who lives, the nation of Israel as a whole never recanted. They never gave up their preference for idols. Instead, they joined the more than 95% or so of all the Jews, blending and melding into the Babylonian culture and lifestyle, to the wholehearted abandonment of their own, that is what got them there in the first place. Such was the case with Mordecai, Esther's uncle and father figure. What's in a name? Mordecai is classified ethnically as a Jew born to a man named Kish, who came into Babylon among the Jewish captives taken at the time of the Jews' last king, Jeconiah, a few years after Daniel. It may not be entirely unreasonable to suppose that, in all probability, he was born sometime early during the latter half of the seventy years of captivity, with Esther being birthed perhaps in the last ten years. Nothing is known or said relative to his mother. However, if the name, Mordecai, is in any wise significant, then she may well have been foreign, although because of her Jewish husband, she lived and raised her family among the Jews, hanging on to her pagan roots, which carried greater weight in the shaping of her family's beliefs and values than did Judaism. This is highly plausible, but not necessary, however, given the Jews' general tendency to gravitate toward all things pagan. Anyway. According to Strong's exhaustive concordance, his name is one of foreign derivation, which means it is not a Jewish term. The Scofield Study Bible, based on the KJV, published by the Oxford University Press, 
indicates that Mordecai means worshipper of Merodach, which was a Babylonian idol, and their god of war, again, per Strong's exhaustive. It is highly unlikely, therefore, that any devout, God-fearing Jewish parent would have so named any child of his. This, then, gives some indication or tells something of the theological mindset and climate undergirding the home into which Mordecai was born and raised. Thus, though he knew very well that he was Jewish, he was never taught all of the Jewish laws and customs, having been born and reared among the Babylonians, as a Babylonian. Neither then was Esther, given that she was, in turn, brought up by this man who was her uncle. See sidebar, Mordecai's background, page 129. Thus, it seems that, as was the case with Samson, and contrary to his choice of Abraham and David, contrary as well, to the teaching of the Pentecostals and Pastor Tenney, God was ultimately not looking for faith-filled servants, at that particular juncture, to fulfill his designs in the face of the pagan Persians, or to carry out his purposes geared to the preservation of his people. Likewise, he was fully apprised of Israel's wicked bent, and his propensity for rebellion, when he chose to debut and showcase them before the world as his chosen people. At that time, their prayers and cries went up to him during their abode among the Egyptians, although God affirms that he was fully aware that he was not their target, as they were praying to their idols. Were this not so, we may rest assured that he would have had no trouble finding faithful servants in the likes of Ezra and Nehemiah, the priestly scribe and descendant of Aaron, who devoted himself totally to the pursuit of knowledge according to the law of God, in hopes that he might teach others, and, the cupbearer to Artaxerxes son of Xerxes, to whom Esther was queen always mindful of the hand of God upon him in whatever the affairs he undertook for his glory, ever desirous that God should remember him, dot for good or, with blessing for all his endeavors on behalf of his people. For this reason, faith on the parts of Esther and Mordecai was non-essential to the cause at hand, as they were in the final analysis mere tools, unwitting instruments in his plan to save, not so much their lives, those having chosen to remain still outside the land of Israel, as to ensure the preservation of those of their countrymen that core group who had journeyed back to Palestine, whose numbers, there were only around 50,000 or so initially, left them too small and too weak to fend for themselves. This would be the group from whose loins the world's Messiah, Christ would spring, some four hundred years or so. Later, it was for their good and well-being that the evil of the Hamans of the world had to be blocked. His plan did not call for such, faith in his, anointed, or deliverer, as, his ultimate objective was to show himself strong in the performance of his plans and his promises to his servants, all hammered out in eternity past, through the preservation of his people. Thus, we may safely conclude then that, this Jewish queen of the Persians and her foster family were no doubt good, decent, upstanding people in the community, probably therefore figuring prominently among all who lived on the up side of the rebellion neither sold out altogether to the idolatry of the day. Although as has been shown, his name implies, idolatry was their preference yet, consequently, not right with God either, in no way actively seeking his face. Hence, furthermore unlike the choicest of his servants, contemporary and past Mordecai, Esther and family did not know him. Knowing him, as we do, one might say in addition that, this whole encounter with Haman was intended to be a wake-up call for them, in a slumber from which they never shook themselves. Preparing an Esther?
So then, in light of the evident implication behind Mr. Tenney's quote of himself, if God can use Esther, he can use anybody, is it fair to say that, or to assume that he will therefore use any young woman today in like manner, if she is properly prepared? What do we mean by, prepared, and was Esther prepared, she and her family being out of fellowship with the Lord God Almighty? As they were. Certainly, the base sentiment of Mr. Tenney's assertion is true, so much so, that it almost seems ridiculous that he should have voiced it. It is on the horn of the ramification of that assertion, however, that his ignorance is laid bare. In light of the road that got them there as a nation, the path chosen and trod by Esther and her family up to the point of their need for redemption, is this something that any Christian should wish for his daughter? As the Pentecostals insist, would any Orthodox Jew of any understanding do so today? Remember, they wandered away from, and were therefore out of fellowship with the Lord their God. But for a few, die-hard, faithful, few sought God's face or grace throughout the whole of the Babylonian captivity and beyond, to the coming of the Magi, following the birth of the Messiah Jesus Christ, Savior of the world. Thus, not only did they not anticipate the impending need for such preparation as would be required, they were idolatrous, Hebrew worshippers of Babylonian gods, not God-fearing Jews. How then, does one living in these times prepare another for the role of an Esther, when he is ignorant of the circumstances that forged her, in the first place? Who prepared Esther? Mordecai's effort to coax her into action shows that clearly in his estimation, she was in no wise prepared. Can that be done, or is it not more safe to say that only a fool, professing faith in God, might so desire? Regardless of the beliefs or the theology of some, these people were not walking in faith or seeking a right relationship, standing with God. Knowing the conditions and circumstances that shaped the void and gave the world Esther to drop in as Phil, why foolishly lead a woman and her people off the straight and narrow, to ostensibly prepare her for supposed great things, when leading her in, teaching her, and her people, to choose, the, way of the Lord, would have been a much more honorable, and noble goal. The circumstance or situation that forged the need for Esther was sin and rebellion, in their homeland, that which came out of the crucible of the captivity to fill the need was an otherwise beautiful, adorable young woman shaped and prepared by her culture to continue in a life of sin and rebellion, out of the will of God, not in service to him. So then, beginning with Abraham and Sarah living in a culture of rebellion, God reached down and chose two people to groom and grow into a nation, preserving them through various stages of development and growth, only to have that nation lapse into sin and rebellion, in which state it was delivered from a hellish bondage only to persist in its rebellion, whereupon, as promised he destroyed them. So likewise, therefore, it should come as no surprise that God would choose a woman and her family, living out of his will as they surely were, to preserve that same people. In contradistinction to this new round of errant dogma enthusiastically pandered and embraced by the holiness, supposed, 600 million, the fact is, you cannot, prepare, an Esther. To the degree that such a person is prepared, to the same degree you no longer have an, Esther, assuming that by, prepare, one means that the, prepared, is schooled in the things and laws of God, so that he, she walks in faith, waiting upon him, giving thanks to him for his provision. Without controversy, there were no doubt such God-fearing young Jewish women of this type, schooled in things of the Lord, intelligent and highly attractive, of Esther, 
caliber and or beyond. By no means would God ever stoop to putting one of his own, faithful and true, into so vile a position, where she would be deprived of the right and the privilege to serve him openly and freely particularly when there are plenty of Esthers, who won't bow the knee, or call on his name, even in times of trouble. The road leading to and mandating the likes of and the services of an Esther, is one of willful, woeful negligence and aversion to the things of God, as shown already, the prepared, i.e., the Ezra's, the Nehemiah's, the Daniel's, etc., though preferred and highly favored in other applications may be altogether ignored in this capacity. Her presence marks the existence of a life among lives still living in that rebellious state, beyond the seventy years' captivity, well beyond the rise of Medo-Persia and the fall of Babylon, and thus out of fellowship with its Maker. In grave danger of extermination yet, having no manifest desire for reconciliation. Hence then viewed in proper context hers was in reality not at all an enviable position, nor is it one to be longed for by any godly young woman as, given the circumstances, only an idiot, lacking in understanding, would, as we shall see, forthwith. Furthermore, one should note that Mordecai and family were among that majority of Jews who chose to remain in Babylon, rather than return to Israel after the seventy years of captivity had ended. Except for the families who gave us the likes of Nehemiah and much later the Magi from the East who in all likelihood were men of Jewish descent there is no historical or biblical evidence that the masses of those remaining ever attempted in any way to carry on the Jewish tradition. To the satisfaction and glory of God, therefore, Esther's life was in fact not one worthy of emulation, strictly speaking. In God's economy and in light of his law, Esther was in fact, moreover, a whore, in that there appears to have been no official wedding between herself and the king, up front, with whom she slept, supposedly, and shared with other women. Following the advice of her uncle Mordecai, hiding the fact of her Jewishness, she made no effort to comply with the will or the word of God, in any matter, including marriage, in hope and trust that she might ultimately sway the palace though she may well have, given that she was well favored in the king's eyes, right off the bat. Although she was a very young contemporary to Ezra, and she may have rubbed shoulders with Nehemiah, Jewish cupbearer to Artaxerxes Daniel being alive, for perhaps the first ten years or so of her life, may well have been dead when she achieved recognition. Arriving at the palace it cannot be said with even modest certainty of either her or Mordecai, that they shared any such faith and dedication to the things of God, as did these well-known saints. Hence, where righteousness was concerned, she was out of the will of God though she remained an integral part of his plan for preservation. Tragedy is, unlike the promiscuous, womanizing Samson, who was also a major player in the plan of God but surrendering only at the very end of his service, she and her uncle never called on his name. They never humbled themselves before him. Samson, on the other hand, lived all of his life in a performance according to his plan, Yet, out of his will as he was dedicated to the pursuit of pleasure, illicit sexual gratification and secular interests. To reiterate then, humanly speaking, you cannot therefore prepare any person to fulfill such a role as that of Esther. Her selection was, as it were, from our vantage point, a random act of God, by means of which he sought only to offset a wicked, satanically inspired plot hatched and handed off to the lethargic, detached, unconcerned, non-inquisitive palace by Haman, 
enemy of all Jews by reverse engineering a deliverance, right under his nose, from within the apathetic king's own throne room, so to speak. That plot left unimpeded, threatened to derail his planned redemption of all mankind. Loss of the Jews at Shushan and elsewhere throughout the kingdom, but for the likes of Ezra and Nehemiah whose services were indispensable to the Ritternese survival might otherwise have been much less of a bother. Furthermore, not only is it impossible to prepare a person for this kind of work of God, it is equally impossible to prepare him, her for any work when that person will not submit to the teaching of the Word and will of God, as is the case with the churches of our day. Therefore, we must conclude that should this new effort by the holiness folk fail to ignite a passion for the written Word of God in its entirety one that was clearly lacking in the life of Esther, one that might even be missing in theirs it is highly unlikely that anyone will ever be outfitted for the master's use, by virtue of either this movie, or the book upon which it is based. They should, then, as they usually do, following any major endeavor on their part, take whatever money this thing generates, and run, until their next encounter with the spirit of greed hits them. It appears this may well be the Pentecostal mantra. When his greed and or need for cash coalesces finding a common outlet, heedless of whatever he does and says that is right. And yes, his teaching and preaching do incorporate a lot of biblical truth, albeit, used as, bait. His general mindset seems to be, we don't give a damn what the word of God says, nor do we care what his will is, we have an itch, and, this itch we will scratch, to our satisfaction, at his expense, in his name, with his words. Conclusion so, by way of reiteration, was Esther's then, in God's eyes, an exemplary life, to be idolized and envied by all? She is at this hour a Jewish woman glorified and lifted high before the eyes of all the world, via the globe-spanning reach of the Pentecostal, Holiness TBN TV network. Yet the reality is, she, whatever the shoe she fills in the plan of God, she is in truth a fine, beautiful woman who is lost for all eternity, like most, if not all of her peers and compatriots, born and reared in Babylon, having chosen therefore to stay, when they could have left to serve and to do homage with pagans to their pagan, man-made gods, rather than to God, who is indeed God. In truth, where faith and trust are concerned, the lives of Ruth the Moabitess, I go where you go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And that of Rahab, the whore, of Joshua fame bears greater cause for jubilation. They turned and trusted in God, their faith being evident, manifest, and without controversy. Esther was, it appears, at best simply an unwitting, unbelieving Jewish tool, in whom there was no evident trust in God. These Gentile women will spend eternity in the presence of their Maker. Esther the Jew without a doubt, like Samson, by the grace of God, born for the time in which she lived along with her family, will instead join Solomon among the ranks of all who will never set foot upon streets of gold. Assuming of course, as is likely the case, she and they died like they lived, in the same polytheistic, God-rejecting, mindset. Thus, in this day and age when the American church's existence, among Anglo and African Americans, bears a remarkable resemblance to that of the apostasy foretold by the Lord and his apostles a day when men prefer theological, religious lies over sound doctrine, they will not submit to a thorough teaching of the Bible one might conclude that via, one night with the king, Satan and his emissaries have added one more notch to their belts, having scored another victory, 
against the Christ, from within the ranks of his churches. In like manner as God's saving of Israel from within the courts of the kingdom seeking its liquidation, or reviving his church from within the ranks of the Roman Catholic system that smothered it for over 1,000 years, tit for tat, the devil seems to be gloating, I can do to you what you do to me, or, you kick my cat, I shoot your dog. Like fools, they, and all who will not submit themselves to the teaching of the Bible, will now march off, ecstatically searching for hope and inspiration in a life in which of itself there was no hope. They will effectively completely ignore the hand behind that life, the real star in the story of Esther, which should have been the focus of Mr. Tenney's attention, and the lives which were indeed touched, shaped, and cultured by that same unseen hand via his word, so as to be exemplary, and therefore worthy of all emulation, i.e., the Ezra's, the Nehemiah's, the Daniel's and his companions, the Ruth's and the Rahab's, etc. If indeed the works of the Tenney Crouch Coalition are for such a time as this, the weight of their combined, manifest spiritual, biblical ineptness has most assuredly ruined it. Similar to King David's mistake of consultation with the wrong people when he sought to return the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, after the Philistines were forced to disgorge it. So likewise, similarly, there was no consultation with the priests of God either before Esther's rendezvous with King Ahasuerus who is Xerxes of Nehemiah, or during the moment of crisis for all Jews hatched by Haman. What is more, the Jews did not then, do not now, acknowledge or remember God even in their Purim feasts, celebrating their victory over Haman. One night with the king, for such a time as this, oddly, no one appears to have seen fit to explain this statement. Hence, what do they mean? What are they trying to say, or, what's the point? If this movie is the handiwork of the Almighty, as they claim, then it would have to be so only in the sense of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, God's response to a church that will not otherwise respond to him, according to his word. Indeed, we among men may, can, and frequently do create the, messes, that demand an Esther. However, God has only responded once in the history of the world, actually filling the vacuum with the presence of an, Esther, a young woman of his random choosing, not man's. There will be needs and dire circumstances in the future, where an Esther would be a definite plus, albeit none will be sent certainly, none that we prepare. When we create our life-threatening, messes, today, the only remedy, for such a time as this, with which God will respond is found at the foot of a cross, bearing his only born Son, Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Remain faithful, even though it will cost you your life, Jesus cautioned the faithful churches of Asia Minor. Thus, Esther, and any cavalry she could lead to the rescue, is expressly precluded. And, so thus we conclude this episode of the Bible Prophecy Masterclass. If you have found this study beneficial, would you please consider hitting that, like, button? Thanks and until we meet again for episode number 17, have a wonderful day and may God bless you.